Well, like me, you've been raised in a culture that loves a winner and that really values success. And uh, this is so, so many times at utterly at odds with ministry. This idea of perceived uh, prospering and perceived doing well, when so much of the Christian life is filled with opportunities to be humble, an acknowledgement that suffering and affliction are not the anomaly, but normal for the Christian life. We just sang, we, we gladly sing of Jesus being stricken, smitten, and afflicted. But when it comes to you and I being stricken, smitten, and afflicted, I'd really rather be on a winning team. And sometimes that American worldly idea even infects ministry, even our perception of spiritual leaders. And this was often the case for the Apostle Paul. Here's this great man of God that the Lord used in such a powerful, unique way. So much of our New Testament written by this great man of God. And yet he suffered affliction like no one else we can think of in the New Testament. I'm always struck by the fact that when Paul refers to his affliction, he calls it momentary and light affliction. I remember as a young man reading that and thinking, how can you call it momentary? It was your entire ministry. And how can you call it light affliction? If, if what you went through is a light affliction, then I've never even had an affliction by comparison. And Paul would simply say this, well, it's only momentary if you compare it to eternity. And it's only a feather lightweight affliction if you compare it to the, the heaviness of the glory of God that's coming, that's being prepared for us. And, and so here Paul is this regularly afflicted man and sometimes those who followed him were tempted to look down on him because even in spiritual things, we sometimes would like to be attached to the coattails of a successful, prosperous, winning man. And of course, in God's sight, Paul was a successful man, a greatly used man. But sometimes those around him didn't see it that way. Have you ever thought about how the, the pathos that when Paul has to write his final letter, 2 Timothy, he even has to say to Timothy, who refers to as unique among his comrades, a kindred spirit, I have no one like Timothy, heart for heartbeat, heartbeat for heartbeat, footstep for footstep, Timothy is unique. And even to that close colleague at one point, Paul has to write this, please don't be ashamed of me because I'm in prison. I know you, Timothy. You're tempted to be embarrassed that your spiritual colleague has been rejected by the world and I now languish in prison. Don't be ashamed of me. Paul would later have to write to the entire letter of 2 Corinthians to a church that was tempting, tempted also to be ashamed of him, to look down on him, to perhaps want to go with spiritual leaders who were more successful in the world's sight. As a matter of fact, Paul says to the Corinthians, he says in, in, in chapter 10, you are looking at things outwardly. And that was the heart of the problem in Corinth, this outward measuring of spiritual greatness by a worldly yardstick. And so he writes really 2 Corinthians to, to defend and explain the nature of his ministry and to make normative the fact that he suffers as an apostle affliction and that they too would suffer affliction. And so trying to just push back on this discouraging ideology that, that they were easily impressed by externals and not really ready to embrace his affliction or their own. And that's the theme of 2 Corinthians. And to be honest with you, I just launched the letter of 2 Corinthians in Cornerstone. 
and welcome to Cornerstone done for the whole church this morning. So on, on relatively short notice, I'm just going to teach you what I would have taught upstairs this morning from this wonderful letter with a little bit of review. So we're just going to focus. I read to you verses 1 through 11 this morning. We're going to focus this morning on verses 3 through 7. Paul begins 2 Corinthians a little bit differently from most of his letters. Most of Paul's letters begin with, who wrote the letter? I, Paul, usually referring to himself as a non-self-appointed apostle, but rather as a drafted apostle, one who'd been declared by God's authority to be an apostle. And then he usually says who the letter is written to. And in almost every letter, what follows next is some kind of praise to God for something God was doing in that church's life. So the letter would begin, this is Paul. I'm writing to you, this dear church, and I want to thank God for what God is doing in your midst. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul instead still wants to thank God for something, but this time it's much more personal. He explodes with praise right here at the beginning of the letter for something God had recently done in his life, in the life of he and his colleagues. At the very least, Timothy, if not the other apostles. And that's what he talks about in the portion we're not looking at today, verses 8 and following. I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of the affliction which came to us. We were literally afraid we were going to die. And God delivered us. And so, with great thoughtfulness, he begins his letter by saying, I want you to praise God with me for this recent comfort and mercy and deliverance in my afflictions that he brought me through. But he's so purposeful here for this reason. You as a church I know are tempted to be ashamed of me because of my afflictions. And instead I want to exalt not only my afflictions, but I want to draw to your attention the praiseworthy nature of our great God who has comforted and strengthened and encouraged us during our suffering. And so let's look carefully together at this very <clears throat> intentional explosion of praise that Paul here brings. I'm calling this message a doxology for divine comfort, praising God for divine comfort. <clears throat> and what we'll see in verses 3 through 7 are three aspects of God's comfort. He's going to kind of look at the comfort of God through three lenses, all of which lend believers, not just Paul, but you and I as well, to just say, thank you, God. I praise you, God. I bless you for the nature of the comfort that you give to your people when they need it most. <clears throat> Look how he begins. Our first point is the praise that's given to the giver <clears throat> of all comfort. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. This first aspect of praise that we want to give to God for his comfort is him being the source of it, him being the father of it. And so he describes God in this praise in three ways. He's God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's secondly, in a different way, the father of all mercy. And lastly, the God of all comfort. So he begins with this explosive, powerful word, blessed. Blessed be this God. Literally, that word means to speak well of him. It's hard not to think immediately of the opposite of speaking well of God would be to complain about God. So this is the opposite of complaining. This is submissive, grateful, thankful praise. Thank you, God. I praise you, God. I bless you, God. I speak well of you, Lord. And what is it that he who to whom is he speaking well? The one who is God the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
course, in the Old Testament, in the synagogue, men and women would have been used to hearing, blessed be the God and father of who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now taking that Jewish formula and injecting it with Christian reality, he says, blessed and well spoken of should be the one who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This emphasis is important because in, as this paragraph unfolds, Paul's going to continue making the case that both the afflictions that believers suffer are associated with Christ and the overflowing comfort, the excessive comfort, if you will, that God brings is also the comfort of Jesus Christ. So right here he wants to associate God, who's the source of comfort, is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ through whom he will mediate the needed comfort for his people. But not only does he say the one who is praised is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he also calls him another kind of father. This time, not father in the same way he would be as a, as the, as a member of the Trinity. It relates to the God the Father, relates to God the Son. But in this case, father meaning the source, the, 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 the supplier of. And he refers to him now as the father of mercies. This word for mercy could be translated tender compassion. Whenever it's used of God in the New Testament, it's interesting. It's always in the plural, not the mercy of God, the mercies of God, emphasizing the, the manifold nature of his mercy, tender compassion. You could even say the father of all pities. It, it, the idea is that it's sympathy that stands, not just ready to stand there and, and feel for you or to bleed with you or to empathize with you, but a sympathy that's ready to move on your behalf. So he says, I praise the, the Father of this kind of tender sympathy that has always been ready to move forth on my behalf, and as we'll see in the paragraph, on behalf of all of God's people. But not only is he the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ and praised because he's the Father of mercies, he also calls him the God of all comfort. Paul has referred in other places to God as the God of love and peace the God of endurance, the God of hope, the God of peace, the God who gives endurance and encouragement. But here, he's the God of not just comfort, but the God of all comfort. And comfort is a key word in this book and a key word in this paragraph. In these verses we're looking at this morning, verses 3 through 7, 10 times the word comfort is either used as a noun or a verb. Not hard to figure out what is the theme of this message. That's why we call it a, a, a doxology for divine comfort. Praising God for the comfort he gives his people. It's also used in this letter three times in chapter 7. He uses it again in the closing chapter 13 in a benediction where he says, Finally, brethren, be comforted. This is the theme that's on the apostle's heart as he writes this letter to the church in Corinth. So this word comfort, since we're going to look at it 10 times, let's just take a moment to make sure we understand it. It's a very popular word in the New Testament, and in Paul's letters it gets translated in one of two ways. It's either translated uh, encouragement or exhortation, or it's translated comfort or consolation. And so you've got two different nuances of the word. So when Paul, when it's, Paul is using it to refer to missionary work and gospel proclamation, it's usually translated, I exhort you. I exhort you. Uh, meaning encouragement with an emphasis on truth and strength. Sometimes uh, he, he'll say often, I exhort you in the name of the Lord. It's not, it's not personal exhortation, but authoritative exhortation. So the word is usually translated exhort when it comes to missionary or gospel proclamation, 
or in his pastoral ministry when he's having to speak to a church about things that are sober and urgent. And in those contexts, usually it's with this, without an edge, without any negativity, without any criticalness, without any harshness, when it's emphasizing sober and urgent truth that maybe the church has begun to forget, to forget, then it's translated to exhort or exhortation. Other times, as here, the word is the same word, is translated comfort or consolation. There, it's usually in the context of people who are suffering, people who are under affliction. Uh, but in either case, whether you call it exhortation or consolation, the, idea, the word has embedded in it this idea, coming along some, alongside someone else to strengthen their faith. This is the word that Jesus used to describe the ministry of the Spirit. I won't leave you as orphans. I will send you another comforter, one who would come alongside you to strengthen you. So called alongside to help someone in need. And so you blend the two together. You can, so sometimes you have to think of it this way. Then exhortation must have with it not, not, a, not a polemic edge and not a harsh edge and not a corrective edge. You see exhortation, it's exhortation with an encouraging nuance. And when you see it translated comfort, you need to think of it this way. It's comfort and sympathy and consolation within its strengthening nuance. And so sometimes we think of comfort as just, just patting someone's hand. And this, is, this would do more than that. It would empathize and sympathize and do whatever is needed to strengthen the faith of someone who's suffering. And so he says, I praise God that he not only has this piteous, sympathetic mercy for us, mercies, plural, for his people, but that also he is the God, the source of all this kind of coming alongside you when you are afflicted to bringing you that perfect balance of consolation, comfort, and strength that you're needed. So in some ways you could define comfort as it's used in this paragraph as strengthening encouragement. I thank you, God, that you are the God of all strengthening encouragement. This is the God who Paul praises, who Paul praises. This is the God who says must be praised. And he starts off his letter saying, blessed be this God. And so that's the first aspect of uh, who, who's the source of it, who is the one bringing this kind of uh, comfort to his people when they need it. And now secondly, we're going to praise him for the actual giving of it. In other words, he would say this, it's not just that God possesses all comfort and mercy, but that he's lavishly generous to us when when we need it the most. Look at Paul's testimony in the second part of, or the first part of verse 4. This God is to be praised. Now he says in verse 4, we praise him not only for who he is, but for what he does. We praise him for the giving of all comfort, quote, who comforts us in all our affliction. I take the us and the hour of affliction to be either the apostolic reference to Paul himself and other apostles, but having so recently in verse uh, 1 and 2 mentioned Timothy, I take it to be when he says we, the God who comforts us in all our affliction, that us and we is at the very least Paul and Timothy himself. He comforts us in all our affliction. Nevertheless, the text will go on to show very clearly that whatever was true that God brought to Paul and Timothy, he would bring to the church at Corinth and he will bring to us as his people as well. He comforts us. He brings this tender sympathy and this strengthening encouragement to bear when, when we need it most. What does he say? He comforts us in all our affliction. 
that's when they needed it most. This word affliction comes from the word that literally means to press or to squash something. It has embedded in it the idea of pressure. And so figuratively, it came in to mean when you're under pressure, when you're harassed, when you're oppressed. This word gets translated many ways in your New Testament as troubles, tribulation, distress, suffering. It's used nine times in 2 Corinthians alone. I praise God that you're this kind of God. And what do you do with that aspect of your character, that tender mercy and strong comfort? You comfort us in all our afflictions, not just some but every affliction. Let me read to you a couple of commentators that helped shape our idea of comfort because I think we have too soft an idea of comfort. Listen to this, this comfort whenever you hear it, these 10 times in this paragraph, we need to be thinking of strengthening comfort. Listen to these words. The comfort Paul has in mind is not some tranquilizing dose of grace that dulls pain, but rather it's a stiffening agent that fortifies one in heart and mind and soul. Comfort relates to encouragement, to help. It's similar to the word exhortation. God's comfort strengthens weak knees, sustains sagging spirits, so that one faces the troubles of life with unbending resolve and unending assurance. Another commentator has written, It's not merely a subjective feeling of relief or psychological support. Comfort, rather, that Paul is referring to here is a present state of peace in the midst of adversity because of his confidence in God's willingness and ability to deliver his people. Our emotional comfort comes not from within ourselves, but from God's commitment to sustain and save his people no matter what. That's the kind of comfort that Paul reminds the church. Timothy and I have never been without it in all of our afflictions. So for a church that's being tempted to question the legitimacy of Paul's leadership, are you really an apostle? Are you really a pastor we should continue to trust and follow? You can see how important it is to say, if you're tempted to say, maybe I'm not really the man because of how much I suffer, then how important is, is it for him to start this letter saying, I praise God that in all the sufferings that you're tempted to be embarrassed about, I have had God beside me, beside Timothy, comforting me and strengthening me at every moment. Kent Hughes, who was recently in our pulpit, you remember graduation weekend, preached here just a few weeks ago, that powerful message on Psalm 32. Listen to what he writes about this paragraph. In his repeated imprisonments in Asia Minor, in Greece, and in Rome's dank maritime prison, those were all nothing more than venues of God's comfort. Through each of the 40 lashes on five separate occasions, through the torturous days of healing that followed each of those five beatings, he experienced the comfort of God. When he was stoned in Lystra, he experienced the comfort of God. When he was adrift on the seas, like, like debris floating there three times, he knew the comfort of God again. When he was in dangers from rivers, God's comfort. Dangers from, God's, uh, from his own people, God's comfort. Dangers in the city, God's comfort. Dangers in the wilderness, God's comfort. Dangers from false brothers, God's comfort. In toil and hardship, 
Through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, without food and cold and exposure, Paul always experienced God's comfort. Never once was he without it. This strengthening comfort blended with empathetic pity and mercy. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed of my afflictions. In every one of them, God was with me. He was no longer ashamed to be with me. He did not abandon me. And so he's calling the church to remind them of this. So perhaps we should stop here a moment and just say this. Do you, like Paul, believe that this is your God? Do you, like Paul, speak well of your God? In the privacy of your heart, have you been tempted to complain against him in times of affliction? Paul says, I praise God that, yes, though I am afflicted, he has always comforted me. Paul says, God is the God and the source of all pity, all comfort. Do you believe that to be true about God? Are you tempted at times to give way to your perception that perhaps he's indifferent or uncaring? Oh, think of a couple of other passages besides Paul's declaration in Psalm 56. In Psalm 56, the psalmist says this, describing why he can trust in God when he's afraid. He says this of God, you put my tears in a bottle. Every tear I've ever cried, you have collected it. You are not indifferent. He's pushing back on purpose on the idea that somehow God doesn't care. Further, he says this, you've recorded every tear in a book. Think of this, the tenderness of God saying this, I saw that tear. And he writes it down. I saw that tear. And he writes it down. God is not indifferent. He is the source of all mercy. Do you believe that to be true about God? And then if you do, then watch your heart for the tendency. Remember, affliction means pressure. In times of pressure, when you are oppressed, watch your heart for doubting whether God is really the source of comfort and mercy. And perhaps more importantly and reflexively, your tendency to look for comfort somewhere else. That's what Paul is saying. If God is the father of it, the God of all comfort, then how foolish and sinful of us to seek Comfort elsewhere. We discussed this last week in Cornerstone. I just asked for a show of hands. There must have been half a dozen people who were willing to say, here are the other places my heart tends to go to look for comfort when I should look to God. You know where those vulnerabilities are in your heart and your life. So we can be wisened by this passage to simply say, the greater the pressure, the greater the harassment, the greater the trouble, the greater the stress, the greater the distress, the greater the suffering, the more tendency you're going to have to doubt the care of God and to look for comfort somewhere else. Brothers and sisters, Paul blasts this letter out of the gate saying, praise God with me and let's agree together that he is the source and the giver of all comfort when? When I'm at my lowest and need it the most. He comforts us in all our affliction. What Paul does next in verses, the rest of verse 4 and on through the rest of verse 7 is he now says not only is God to be praised because he's the giver and to praise him because he does indeed give all comfort, but now there are goals associated. There's a purpose associated with the comfort. And what you're going to find in verses 4 through 7 now are two purposes for which God comforts you. In other words, I remember Matt uh, Waymeyer standing here years ago preaching from this pericope and just saying, we are comforted to be comforters. 
not to be comfortable. And that is indeed what this passage is teaching. That's the first of the two goals. First, to minister personally to other people. And you'll see that in the second half of verse 4 through the first half of verse 6. And then the second purpose of God bringing comfort is not just to make you feel better, but so that you can be a personal ministry to other people. The second purpose is He gives that comfort not only to help you minister personally, but also to help you endure patiently. Because the, when you turn to God and you hear, well, He's the source of compassion. He's the source of mercy. That mean, must mean He's the source of relieving all affliction immediately. And He's not. And so He brings comfort, not only so you can then in turn comfort others, so you can be a conduit of ministry to others, but also so that you won't throw in the towel and give up in the midst of an affliction that perhaps goes on in your mind just a little too long. So looking at these two goals for God's comfort, these two purposes. Let's look at the first one. You'll see it there at the second half of verse 4, to minister personally to others. We know that this is the purpose because of these very obvious words. Whenever you see this in your Bible, let it circle it. Let it jump out to you. So that. Here's the purpose. This God who has all comfort is the Father and source of all comfort and gives all comfort in every single affliction. What did he do that for? So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Paul says, I'm utterly convinced that the purpose for which God brings me this comfort is so that I would be better equipped to minister to you as a church. We, the apostles, we, Timothy and I, will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. God equipped me with comfort to help you. I, I want to be a mediator of comfort to you as a church so that I'll be ready to console any of you when you're in any kind of trouble. And with what, what are the tools? What are the resources? What would he do to bring consolation to others? Look what he says. With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, let's read that again with this definition of strengthening encouragement. So we will be able, why did God provide comfort? So that we will be able to strengthen and encourage those who are in any affliction with the strength and encouragement with which we ourselves were strengthened and encouraged by God. He says, God brought me the comfort not just to help me sustain, not just to help get me through, but so that in some future moment I would have the opportunity to say to you, Hey, can I show you a passage that helped me when I was in a time like this? Can I declare to you the goodness of God and what I learned through this? Can I declare to you and strengthen and encourage your faith and affliction by reminding you that God sustained me as well? So Paul is saying, Corinthians, you've had a front row seat to watching my suffering. You are aware of all that has happened to me. Not so much in Corinth, but in other places. You're well aware. And God comforted me so that I'd be ready to comfort you. And of course, what's true of Paul is true of you and I as well. God brings you comfort, not just to make you comfortable, but so that you could be a comforter to others. How did Paul go about doing this? I would say primarily in two ways. How was he a conduit of comfort to Corinth? I would say, number one, by example. By how he's responding, even in this letter, by praising God for both affliction and the comfort God provides. And by specific words of encouragement. And I think that's largely how you and I do the same thing amongst, uh, in our ministry here in the church. 
Some of you just by walking through a difficult valley and showing up here on a Sunday. When it's difficult, putting one foot in front of the other. Just by example, we know the grief you're suffering. We know the rejection from your family because of your Christianity. We, we know that and we see that and you accidentally encourage us just by being yourself. And then at other times, we encourage one another. We would follow Paul in saying, the reason I'm comforted is so I can comfort others, is we do it with specific words. Can I encourage you? Let me speak to you. Let me strengthen your faith. Let me remind you what God has reminded me of when I was in a place similar to you. John Newton expressed deep concern when he was in one of the deepest afflictions of his life. He said this, he was very aware as a minister that his whole flock is watching him. And Newton said this, he was praying to the Lord. He said, Lord, I pray that my friends and hearers may be encouraged by seeing how I am supported. Lord, support me in such a way that others will see it and be encouraged. In Spurgeon's autobiography, he, he talks of the great value of you and I talking to each other, as the Apostle Paul did with words telling people, let me tell you how God sustained me. Listen to how Spurgeon describes how sometimes when he's talking to a young believer that they seem surprised that he understands. Spurgeon writes this, quote, Full often I have found it good when I have talked with some young convert in deep distress about his sin, to tell him something more of his anxious plight than he knew how to express. And he has wondered, how could I do that? Though he would not have wondered if he had known where I had been and how much deeper in the mire I was than he. When he talked about some horrible thought he has had with regard to the impossibility of his own salvation, I have said, why, I have had that same thought 10,000 times. And yet I have overcome it with the help of the Holy Spirit. I know this, says Spurgeon, that a man's own experience is one of the very best weapons he can use in fighting with evil in other men's hearts. Often their misery and despondency, aggravated as it commonly is by a feeling of solitariness, will be greatly relieved if it is effectually driven out when they find out that a brother has suffered the same and yet he has been able to overcome. Do I show him the Savior is precious to my soul? Then he glorifies God in me, and right soon he will look into the same dear face and be lightened, and then he will magnify the Lord with me, and we will exalt his name together. So whether it's Paul or Newton or Spurgeon, the value of tenderly expressing our personal experience. Now, it's not what we aren't saying is our anecdotes have power. It's not that my story has power. But when you blend your story with principles from Scripture, here's how the Lord sustained me. Here's what I learned about me. Here's what I learned about Him through this. That is what it means for us to fulfill this goal. Why did God, does God comfort Paul? Why does God comfort you? Well, Paul, so he could comfort the Corinthians. You and I so we can comfort and strengthen one another. So look at verse five where he just talks about the proportion of this comfort. He is more than adequately equipped to, to be ready to comfort the Corinthians. Verse five, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Seeing that, or, or be, rather than because, so that four is sort of seeing that the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. Look and don't miss this. The comfort of Christ is also ours in abundance. 
What's happened here in verse 5 is the word afflictions has now been substituted with another term, and that is suffering for Christ. This is not the suffering for Christ, uh, rather the suffering Christ did on the cross for our pardon. That was once and for all completed. We don't join Christ in that kind of atoning suffering, nor is he referring to the kind of sufferings that everybody experiences uh, that are just common to living in a fallen world. He's specifically saying this, the sufferings because of our relationship with Jesus Christ are manifold and many and abundant. He's normalizing the resistance of the world, sometimes, sometimes close by uh, family rejection, sometimes cultural rejection, sometimes pressure at work, pressure at school for students. He's admitting this, the sufferings we have because of our association with Jesus Christ, they're abundant. They are excessive. They are the word that's sometimes used to describe excess or surplus. They overflow. They are many. And of course, we've come to expect this if you've read your New Testament. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Listen from Paul's pen how many times he speaks of this kind of affliction being abundant. I am filling up, says Paul, what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ in Colossians. In Philippians, he says, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death. In Romans 8, he says this of all believers, if we suffer with him, don't worry, we will also be glorified with him. In Galatians, he refers to bearing in his body the brand marks of Christ. The writer to the book of Hebrews calls the church of Jesus Christ, be willing to go outside the city, the place of shame, and bear his reproach with him. And of course, as we just finished recently the book of 1 Peter, you may recall in chapter 4, we're told, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ. So indeed, Paul's afflictions overflowed. But good news, he said, proportionate to that, God's comfort also, in the same way, just as so also, our comfort is abundant and overflowed in Christ. As overwhelming as the afflictions in Christ may be, your rejection, the price you pay for being a Christian, as overwhelming as that may be, Paul assures us, Christ's comfort is proportionately overwhelming. Christ's comfort overflows. It's abundant to us. It overflows so that it can overflow from us onto others. We have no personal comfort to give. It's the sufferings of Christ, indivorceable from the comfort of Christ. Do you believe that? There is a tendency in our hearts to just say, I fear that God will bring something into my life where the affliction is actually greater than his ability to comfort and I'll fall apart. And Paul is saying, you don't need to fear that ever. Look at my life. Yes, suffering and affliction overflowed in my life because I love Jesus Christ. But that same Jesus Christ for whom I suffered has come alongside me and with equal proportion perhaps exceeded it enough comfort to balance what he's asking you to walk through. Do you believe that? Ground your faith in this. And when your mind questions otherwise, eh, I'm afraid he might ask something that's just too much and I'll snap. No, this verse is a specific bullet to load in your spiritual weapon to shoot down that lie. That will never happen. Just as the sufferings of Christ are abundant, so the comfort of Christ is abundant. And now he moves from general principle. Look what he does in verse 6. And he says, and you ought to know this, Corinth, because it happened in our relationship. 
So now he's moved from the general principle that we can comfort any who are in affliction to saying, look, this actually happened in me and Timothy's relationship with you. Verse 6, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and affliction. Moreover, he says, it. if we have suffered, it's for your good. Paul's affliction, which the Corinthians were tempted to despise and be embarrassed of, he says, these are the means by which your faith gets strengthened. He says, if we're afflicted, it's not only do you get comforted, it actually led to your salvation. My experience of affliction as I, kept, as I preach the gospel and am persecuted for it is what has led to your saving faith. In Ephesians, Paul had to tell the church there, don't lose heart at my tribulations, for they are your glory. To Timothy, he says, for this reason, I endure all for the sake of those who are chosen so that they may obtain salvation. This is deep in the heart of the apostle. He is simply saying, I am, look, if I suffer, that's for your salvation. That's for your comfort. And that's all I want. But he also turns the other side of the coin. Look what he says next. Or... If we are comforted, it is for your comfort. So if I suffer for preaching the gospel to you, you win. Because that's what led to your salvation and your conversion. And if in my suffering God comforts me, you also win. Because that comfort then I can then turn to you and comfort you when you need it. So Paul is basically saying this. I am in a lose-win situation. Suffer, that's the lose. Comfort, that's the win. But you as a church... You are in a win-win situation. When I suffer, that's for your benefit. When I'm comforted, that is also for your benefit, for your comfort. Here, comfort, you can think of this, for your spiritual safety, for your spiritual health, for your spiritual joy, for you to be renewed in the experience of God's grace. So again, before we move to the second purpose of God bringing comfort to his people, we have to ask ourselves, not only do you believe that that comfort will be as proportional as your sufferings, but do you have this selfless attitude that Paul had when he says, I'm totally willing to suffer because that will benefit you. Just as we sang a few moments ago, Jesus was willing to be stricken, smitten, and afflicted for our spiritual benefit so that we could be pardoned and reconciled to a God with whom we were at enemy status. Paul says, in imitating Christ, I too am willing in my small way to be stricken, smitten, and afflicted selflessly for your benefit, for your good. I did it all for you, says Paul. Are you willing to say the same thing? I remember many years ago, in my, early in our ministry in Little Rock, uh, there was a family crisis. A member of my, well, my younger brother almost died. And uh, I got that call and I immediately drove over to uh, Stephen Ann Lawson's home and we sat in their living room crying and distressed and afraid, not knowing whether my brother would live or die. Good news, he lived. Uh, but at that moment, it was very, very iffy. And so I was just pouring out my heart to them and they comforted and they consoled me. And then they said something I've never forgotten. This is some 38 years later. Uh, after praying and consoling, they said, Todd, because God has called you to ministry, you need to develop a mindset for the rest of your life. Everything you go through is not just for you. It's for the church. You're going to be better able to minister. I don't know who, when, how, or why. Sometime in the future, because of this crisis in your family's life. 
and it, it just suddenly had purpose and meaning and it took it didn't it didn't take away all the pain or the fear it just put it in a broader context where it had purpose it wasn't random it wasn't pointless it had purpose and meaning and that's what Paul is saying the goal the reason that God comforts is so you can have this personal ministry to others but you understand you're talking about making a sacrifice paying a price to be better equipped to minister to other people one man has written this God's comfort is more than adequate to meet my needs so that he can then meet the needs of other people through me. So I hope the next time I, next time I am hurt or confused or perhaps put upon and treated unjustly that I'll no longer ask, why me, Lord? But rather ask, why not me? And for whom? Why not me? And for whom? Then, from the deep reservoir of abundant and wholly adequate strength that God supplies, I'll become a conduit for the life-giving, refreshing waters of divine comfort for which other people so desperately thirst. Do you believe that God's comfort will be as strong as your trials? And are you willing to endure those trials for the purpose of being better equipped to comfort someone else in this church at some future point. That is selfless suffering. Finally, as we close, there is a second goal embedded in this paragraph, a second purpose for which Paul is praising God for the comfort he brings, not only so we can minister to other people, but also so that we can endure patiently. Look at the second half of verse 6. Referring to this comfort that God gives so that we can comfort others, he says of this comfort, it is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. It's, it's effective, it's powerful, it, it, it works, it produces something. So he says the second reason God comforts you is to produce in you a steadfast stick to ativity. We used to call it in our family. Stick to ativity. Don't give up on the task. And so he says it's effective in producing in you a patient enduring of what? The same sufferings we also suffer. And so the second goal for which God gives you this comfort is not just to make you comfortable, but to make you a comforter and to also make you patiently endure. Now you're kind of back to the beginning where he says, bless God or complain about God. Most of us do fairly well in a crisis, but sometimes in the dog days of a trial when it goes on, because this word for endure is the word that means to bear up under something for a long time. To bear up quickly in a crisis is one thing, but, uh, but to bear up over the long haul, he says, that's why God comforts you. And what does that comfort do? It strengthens your faith so that you don't throw in the towel. You ever heard yourself saying in the privacy of your mind, most of us are too smart to say it out loud. I'm done. That's it. I'm done. Somewhere I'm quitting. I'm throwing in the towel. It's not worth it. It's gone on too long. I don't know where we got the idea that all trials should be short, but if I've prayed and asked for help, then it ought to be over by Saturday, right? That's how we think. And he says, look, God comforts you to sustain you through the long haul. It's effective in the producing of the patient enduring of the same sufferings. Don't throw in the towel. That's what keeps us from giving up. And finally, Paul says in verse 7, look how confidently he ends this paragraph. He speaks confidently with great certainty 
that God will mediate his comfort to equip this church. Verse 7, and our hope is firmly grounded, firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, well, stop the presses for just a moment. At this point, something inside you, if you know the Corinthian church, ought to be thinking, Paul, this is a weak, immature church. How can you be so certain about how they're going to respond to suffering? I mean, they, have, they blow it in their relationship with you. They blow it in their relationship with each other. This, this church is a mess. Uh, throughout this letter, Paul never gives up on this church. But the, comf- the reason Paul can be so confident is because it has nothing to do with the character of the Corinthians. What he's ending this paragraph saying is, I, am, I have a firm hope because I know something. And it's something about God. And I know it because it's true of God, and I know it because of my experience. So look how he closes. Knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, that word share, partners, it's the word we get our word fellowship with. Knowing that as you fellowship with us in our sufferings, I am confident of this, that you also will share and partner and experience the comfort I've already tasted. That's why you can say, I'm certain of you, Corinth. Corinth, why? Well, because actually it's not you I'm certain of. It's God I'm certain of. And that's why I've exploded this letter by opening, I praise the God of comfort. And how does he mediate that comfort? He says over again, the sufferings of Christ is abundant. The comfort of Christ. How does God mediate his comfort to his people? Through Jesus Christ. So you have God who is merciful to you. God who who comforts you, strongly encourages you. You have Jesus Christ. It's mediated through Jesus Christ who is depicted not only in this paragraph, but it's hard not to run ahead to the book of Hebrews, a sympathetic high priest who's been tested in every way like you and never sinned. So when you cry out, he knows how to come and assist you and bring you truth that would comfort your soul. Are you utterly convinced, like Paul, utterly convinced that as as a believer, you're going to have to suffer and that you'll share in that fellowship, the fellowship with Christ and his sufferings, the fellowship with your fellow brothers and sisters. But are you utterly convinced that you will also share in the absolute strengthening, encouraging comfort that only God can give? A second outline could be given to this passage as we close. I've called it praise to the giver of all comfort, praise for the giving of comfort, praise for the goals of comfort. Here's an even simpler way to think about this paragraph. You could say Paul is simply saying this, who is God, what does he do, and why does he do it? And we challenge all three of those. There are barriers between you and believing that. So here's the truth. Who is God? He's the source of all comfort. Don't look for it anywhere else. What does he do? He gives that comfort. When? When you are at your lowest and need it the most. And we're tempted to doubt, yeah, but will it be enough? Will it balance the trial? Yes. So push past all those lying, doubting barriers with this great paragraph. And then finally, why does God do it? Paul praises God for why he does it. So you will unselfishly be better equipped to be a conduit of comfort to others. And secondly, he gives you his comfort so you won't throw in the towel when you perceive that trial and affliction has gone on too long. Isn't that what we need every day? That's what I need. I need to be willing to die to myself and suffer not only and experience comfort so I can comfort you better, so you can comfort one another better. There have been many times I've prayed and asked the Lord, Lord, here's a prayer I'd love for you to answer, but 
I've had to say this, if I was honest, this is how I've prayed. Lord, if I make a better family ministries pastor for Grace Emmanuel Bible Church by going through this, and you never change it, and you never relieve me of this burden, if I'm a better pastor for that, I wish I could say what I pray is I'm willing. Instead, you want to know the truth? This is what I pray. I'm willing to be made willing. I don't know if I'm quite there yet, Lord. I don't know if I quite love you guys enough to go through it yet or not. And I hope that means I still have a job next week. But <laughs> I think this is where we all are. That's, this is, to me, this is the, the main point where we need to grow, is to add the perspective, when you suffer, it's not just for you anymore. You are connected to Jesus Christ, and we are connected to one another. So what happens to me is ultimately not just for my good, but at some future time, perhaps, for your good. And to be honest with you, it's utterly mutual. Some of you are going through things right now so that at some point you may be ready to minister to me for my good as well. That is a pretty safe place to be. What a great opportunity to be in the body of Christ, to be a family, to do that for one another. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we join with Paul in praising you for who you are. You are the source of sympathy and pity. You are the source of strengthening encouragement when we are at our lowest. Forgive us for the foolishness of seeking what only you could provide in other worldly places. And we join Paul in, in praising you that you do give this comfort just at the time we need it the most. The context of the comfort is when we are afflicted. And those afflictions, because of we suffer with Christ, are many. And that comfort is, is, is equally abundant. Forgive us for doubting that the supply would meet the need. You are an eternal God. Your ability to comfort is eternal, infinite. How could we think it would ever be otherwise? And we thank you for the two purposes for which you bring comfort, to sustain our faith over the long haul and to make us better ready to minister to one another. So, Father, we pray that you would get yourself glory by conforming our thinking and our life and our ministry to one another to this passage. May we speak well of you and never complain against you as if it were possible for you to have asked too much of us. Forgive us for the self-pity which always ultimately leads to us making an accusation against you. You've given me too much of this and not enough of this. Lord, we want to learn to repudiate blasphemous thoughts that you could ever be anything except the God of strengthening encouragement and piteous sympathy when we need it most. Make us better ready to minister to one another over the long haul, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.